0: So, we're in this series called Parables. Uh, He who has ears, let him hear. And basically, from now till through the summer, we're going to be studying through different parables. There's roughly about 40 parables that Jesus spoke, so a lot of them are going to be clumped together. But this morning, we're going to talk about the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. So, we're going to jump right in, as long as this is going to work for me. There we go. Okay, and is that the second? Yep, there we go. Okay, so we're starting off with the parable of the hidden treasure. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Then that rolls right into the parable of the pearl of great value. And it says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there's two very short parables. And in these two parables, we have this unifying theme of the great value of the kingdom of heaven. The great value of the kingdom of heaven. We have two people. They both sold everything they owned in order to buy something of great value. In one case, it was a treasure. In one case, it was a pearl of great price. Now, in modern day investments, you might realize this, but it was also true in investment strategies back then uh, when Jesus told this parable. So it would kind of spark interest because most of you know in investment strategies, it's not good to put everything in one thing, right? It's not good to put everything in one thing. So some money would be in land. Some money would be in real estate. Some money would be in precious metal. In today's, uh, you know, talk, some money would be in stock. It would be invested, it would be diversified, so that you wouldn't lose everything, right? So when Jesus told this parable, it sparked attention of the hearers because these people were thinking, okay... He's telling us this story about someone who sold everything for one thing. Sold everything for one thing. Now, when you think about that one thing, that one thing must be something, right? That one thing really must be something. If you're willing to say, I'm going to give everything or sell everything and take all my resources and put it into this one thing. Well, Jesus said this, it sparked people's attention, and he said, this is really the kingdom of heaven. Or in other words, spending eternity with God, giving up everything, selling everything, turning your back on everything is worth the kingdom of heaven. So I want to define the kingdom of heaven. And really, it is the spiritual realm in which God reigns over as king. The spiritual realm which God reigns over as king. When we inherit the kingdom of heaven, it's basically trusting in the gospel message. Okay? You hear that here every week. The gospel message is, is we are sinners in need of a savior. Jesus is that savior who is willing to die to pay the price for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave Three days later, and Jesus says, all who believe will have eternal life. Now, that one thing, right, is something, okay? It's something worth turning your back on everything else in your entire life, selling everything, giving everything away, whatever it is, to give yourself over to Christ. So what I want to do is I want to look at some truths about the kingdom of heaven based on these parables and other scriptures. So the first truth about the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom is priceless. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you so what we have in our salvation through jesus is so precious that the value cannot be determined okay the value cannot be determined that's why then the first parable we're told we're not told what the hidden treasure is you notice that a guy's plowing the field and he finds a treasure and he re-hides it and then goes, buys the field. And some people think like, isn't that kind of weird? Okay, but culturally speaking, actually that was not kind of weird. That wasn't like an unethical thing to do. But the truth is we're not even told what that treasure is. So basically we're led to believe it must be something. The value cannot be determined. So we can't even imagine or begin to imagine what our heavenly home is like. You ever think about that? You ever think about how there's not that much description of heaven? I mean, granted, we get to the end of Revelation and we see this heavenly city and the dwelling place of God is with people, but it doesn't really tell us that much about heaven. Do you realize for years, heaven has been portrayed in cartoons, like cartoon heaven, you know cartoon heaven. If you grew up in my generation, especially like Bugs Bunny, like Elmer Fudd, all that stuff, what's heaven, right? like a little fat baby angel with diapers on floating around on a cloud, right? That's heaven. You're thinking, That's, what a weird portrayal that is. And in fact, some people look at that and say, Ugh, I don't want anything to do with that. That just seems boring and weird. We can't even begin to, to imagine what heaven is like. We can't even begin to imagine how valuable and how amazing and how precious the experience is going to be to be in the presence of God and his people for eternity. But Peter tells us a few things about heaven. He says, heaven will not perish. In heaven, there is no sin. I mean, think about this for a second. I mean, we're so conditioned to live in a world that bad things happen, that sin is present. Can you imagine being in a place? I can't even like imagine or wrap my brain around what that would actually be like to be in a place where there is no sin. It's undefiled. It will not fade away, which means it lasts for eternity. And this is what Jesus has in store for us. This is what Jesus has in store for us. And guess what? We can't put a price tag on it. It's priceless. We can't put a price tag on that. I mean, realistically, if we could fully comprehend and understand it, people literally would never reject Christ because they would look and see what's in store for them and say, I need that. I need to be there. So along with the kingdom of heaven being priceless, the kingdom is also costly, which kind of seems to be a little weird to say it's priceless, but it's costly as well. See the reason these two men sold everything they had was because that is what it took to purchase the land and the pearl okay it took everything they had to purchase that land and to purchase the pearl but then you ask well isn't the gift of eternal life heaven free and i would answer of course it is okay we freely receive that gift of eternal life but then how could it be costly how could it have a high cost Well, the first way that the kingdom of heaven or our salvation has a high cost was the price that Jesus had to pay. Think about this for a second. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, later in that passage, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the Lamb of God, like that of a lamb of God without blemish or a spot. So now, basically, what this is saying is the kingdom of heaven, or our salvation, is so costly because Jesus gave up his blood. It wasn't with silver or gold. It's nothing you can buy. That's why, you know what, having a ton of money, yeah, it seems appealing and stuff, but it can't buy you salvation, okay? It can't heal all those things. I mean, any of you have been in a situation where you're sick or somebody's sick in your family, it doesn't matter how much money you have, right? Okay? If someone's dying in your family or someone passes away, it doesn't matter how much money you have because all the money in the world can't keep that person alive. But the high cost of what Christ has done for us is he actually shed his blood. Jesus did that on our behalf, and our sin because of our sin, and essentially it cost him his physical life. Not only did it cost Jesus his physical life because he gave that up for us, but it cost the father his son. And any of you out there that are parents, you know that that is a very high cost to give up a child. But the second way the cost is high is the cost is actually our life. Do You realize the, the gift of eternal life is free, but the cost is eternal life. You may be thinking salvation does not sound free at all. But let me tell you this. The cost is always your life. The cost is always your life. It depends on what you're buying. Okay? If you choose to give your life to Jesus, you actually lose your life to him to actually save it for eternity. But conversely, if you do not lose your life to Jesus in your efforts to save your own life, you'll actually lose it to your sin. You get that? You're always going to lose your life. It's always going to cost you your life. But what are you going to buy? Okay? What, who are you going to give it to? And that's where in, it, Jesus says in Mark 8, 36 through 37, says, For what does a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What does a profit a person? To gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul. To have everything. What this world thinks is so important, what is so great. That's why when we go back to these two guys, when we look and we say, they went and got rid of everything. They sold everything. What they were buying must have been so important. See, you can hold on to your rejection, but in the end, you're going to lose your life to the uncertainty and separation from God. Or you can lose your life to Jesus and give your life over to him. I mean, that's the message we bring to the community, right? That's the message that this church brings, because basically, when we give our lives to Christ, we give it to certainty, we give it to eternal life. We give it to something that's better than everything that we can ever imagine. You know, these two men in the parable were willing to give up everything for something they saw as worth more than everything they had. That is us when we believe in Jesus. Basically, what's happening is this. When, we, when you decide to trust in Jesus, even though salvation is a free gift, you're actually saying, I'm willing to give up my life to something that I've seen, that I see and realize is worth more than anything that I actually have. See, the kingdom is priceless, the kingdom has a high cost, but we also realize this, the kingdom is not obvious to all. And this is where it's like, kind of like a heartbreaker, isn't it? Because we know what we know. We know the grace of God, we love the grace of God, we know what he's done for us. But because the kingdom of heaven has to do with our spiritual lives, it's actually not obvious to all. So so many of us will deal with people in our, our families, in our friend group, in work, that it's just not obvious. Okay, People get distracted. They only focus on the physical. There's actually at least two ways this happens. The first is actually the blinded mind. Okay, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, I talked about this verse last week. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here's what happens. Satan, there's spiritual warfare going on. Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they do not see the truths of God. Now, you may know people like this. They just seem like they have no spiritual depth, No spiritual interest at all. In some cases, they almost seem like a a soulless person. Now, that's impossible. They're not a soulless person. But do you know people like this? They just have no spiritual interest at all. Spiritual things are not obvious to them. They don't even seem to care at all. It's just like they live their life. They get up, go to work, do their thing, whatever. Spiritual things are the furthest thing from their mind. Now, I know you. most of you realize this. Right now, America is considered a post-Christian nation. Okay, As much as people want to say we're a Christian nation, it's actually a post-Christian nation. There's the, this generation of post-Christian people. They call them the nuns, not nuns as in the Catholic Church. But when they fill out a form and it says, what religion are you? They say, none. Okay? Meaning, they have no upbringing. I mean, most of us here probably were probably brought up in some kind of religious background. Whether you went to, whether you continued with that religious background, uh, it, you know, is, is up to you, right? But you were brought up with something, okay? Well, these next generations coming through were brought up with nothing, I always remember one of the missionaries we worked with in Boston. He was always very concerned. I mean, he's a street evangelist, so, you know, this is what he does day in and day out. And he was always very concerned with the blinded mind person because he said, these are the people that just walk past and it's like they don't even see you. They just tune right out. There's nothing going on. He actually used to say this. I'd rather have somebody come up to me and engage me in debate and be mad at me and want to argue with me because at least I know that something's going on spiritually in them. And that's true. You have people like that in your life, right? People that, you know, they argue, oh, you're a Christian. Something's going on there, okay? It bothers them that what you have they don't fully understand yet it bothers them that what you have actually brings you joy and they don't have joy so they want to pick it apart they want to see it's real that's why when something tragic happens in your life they're watching okay they want to see is is that person the real deal like how are they going to handle this how are they going to handle their faith are they going to turn their back on god one of the best descriptions in, we have in the scripture of this is Job, right? I mean, we've got 42 chapters of a guy that was just beat down. And what does he do? He praises the Lord. Even his wife's like, curse God. That's what she says to him, okay? So people that don't debate you, don't challenge you, don't ask questions and stuff, people that just seem to go through life just blinded, it's very concerning, Spiritual things are not obvious to them. But the truth is this. At the end, okay, when they pass from this earth, they still have to give an account. They still will stand before the Lord, even though they're like, oh, you know what? Like, I never even thought about these things. They weren't obvious to me. I didn't even really think about it. They still, we still all have to face the Lord. The second group of people that spiritual things are not obvious to are the carnal mind. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So now carnal, carnal basically is, is, is uh, related to physical things, okay? It's all about the physical. Their perspective is, if I can't see it, it probably doesn't exist, okay? They just look, this is what life's about these are the people that put bumper stickers on their card and says he who dies with the most toys wins that's that guy okay the people that like hey you know what i got the most stuff this is what life's all about it's about pleasure it's about having a good time it's about acquiring stuff it's about building my earthly kingdom this person has a hard time seeing the necessity of spiritual things and the kingdom of heaven because they're so focused in on the things of this world When they see a person give up worldly things and worldly pleasures to serve or live for God, they shake their heads. You know how we shake our heads? We're like, yeah, they shake their heads. They're like, what are they doing? okay? Why would you do that, okay? Why would you give money to a ministry or a church? Why would you give up things? Why would you give up an opportunity to advance in some career when you, when, when you could have those things? Why would you give those things up to serve God or to uh, sacrifice? See, as believers. We have to remember that sometimes the things we do will not make sense to those who do not believe. The things that we do will not make sense. They'll look at us and they'll shake their head. My suggestion is don't get discouraged. Don't even try to convince them because they're probably not ready to accept it yet. Okay? Don't get discouraged. Don't argue. Just say, this, you know, this is the way I live. At some point, maybe they'll wake up. Maybe they'll realize that carnal things, the things of this world, will not actually fulfill what they're trying to fulfill. Which brings us to the next thing that we learn about the kingdom. And that is the kingdom is the source of true joy. See, most people want to be happy. Most people want to experience joy. Oftentimes what happens is people search for joy in the things of the world and they find some temporary joy. You've been there, right? You search for joy in the things of the world. You find some temporary joy today, but it's gone tomorrow. And then, you know, you left a little unfulfilled. You ever go on a vacation? Most of you have been on vacation. You like you look forward. You're like, yeah, vacation. And then you get to like the middle of the vacation. You're like, I still have like half a vacation left. And then you get to the last day of vacation. You're like, we have to leave tomorrow. And you're like, ah, oh, you know. It's because your expectation, your your joy was coming from the experience of being on vacation. And now all of a sudden that was done. And you know, you know, maybe in your case, you have to work a whole another year to get to that vacation again. See, the truth is, though, we can only find true joy in the Lord. That's why in the parable of the hidden treasure, when the man finds the treasure, it says... Then, in his joy, he goes and sells everything. Think about this for a second. In his joy, he goes and sells everything. So basically, imagine yourself in this situation. You're going back to your house, and you're like, yes, I'm giving up all this stuff. Everything I know, my car, my house, everything I know, and I'm so happy about this. And why was he so happy? Because whatever that hidden treasure was, it was something and he was like, I don't care about any of this other stuff because I want that. And that's our relationship with the Lord. So the man realized he found something that brought him joy and he wanted to grab hold of it. Now, joy is actually something that Jesus promises us. Do you realize that? In John 15, 11. Um, wait, I guess I didn't put this one in. Oh, there it is. Um, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So now Jesus promises that we will have joy, okay? There's a little difference between joy and happiness. We're never promised necessarily a happy life, but we are promised joy. So what are these things that Jesus speaks about that bring us joy? Well, I think you'll be interested to find out that when you look at John 15, These things that actually bring us joy are actually following after Jesus, following his commandments. In John 15, it says loving one another, loving God. These things, when you do these things, they're going to bring you joy. See, a Christian can live a joy-filled life by following Jesus. The commands that are most primary, remember, when, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Is love God and love others do you want true joy in your life well not only give your life over to jesus but actually follow him actually do what he says you know the most miserable people that we know are the people that don't do this the people that don't love god they don't love others so think about the two men in these parables they're following after this priceless thing that brought them joy so finally People discover the kingdom differently. Don't be confused. That doesn't mean there's different ways to the kingdom, okay? Jesus said he is the only way. He's the only way to the Father. Don't think like, okay, whatever religion you subscribe to, I've heard people say this, it's all getting you to the same place. No, okay? Every road does not lead to the same place. Practically speaking, you know that, okay? But spiritually speaking, we know that there's only one way. So don't be confused, but people will discover the kingdom differently. Although the main concept of these two parables is the same, there's one main difference. That the one individual was not looking for the treasure. Remember the guy in the field? Okay, He was doing work. He was plowing a field. And then he discovered it. And the other guy was a merchant actually on a hunt for fine pearls. So think about it. We have one person who's actually just going about his day and actually finds it, wasn't looking. And then another person that's actually looking. So this reminds us that some happen to see the truth, and there's nothing in the first parable that leads us to believe that that guy was even looking, but he found it. Think about this, the Apostle Paul in Acts 9. Was the Apostle Paul looking for the truth on the road to Damascus? No. He actually thought he had the truth. He thought he was a good religious guy going to snuff out this new little cult that kind of sprung up. And Jesus came and said, it ain't a cult, okay? Okay, here I am right here before you and I am the Lord. Paul wasn't looking, okay? He was actually doing the exact opposite. He was looking to get rid of it. But he happened upon the truth and he gave his life to the truth and thanks to the apostle Paul, now we have like 60% of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit inspired to write through him. Maybe that was you. You weren't even looking, but you found the truth. You weren't even looking, but you found the truth. You know, one of the things like, that's so interesting about being a pastor is um, not only in the church context, but when I was a youth pastor, to see kids that, you know, I remember this one kid, he came to youth group Because he was a skateboarder, and we used to do a lot of skate things. And he literally wrote in his testimony, he goes, my friend invited me to this thing because they were taking us skateboarding. I had no clue of my spiritual need. So, you know, he just skated up, and we're like, yep. (laughs) Okay, this kid's coming out because he has four wheels under his feet. And now he realizes what that something is, what he wants to give his life to. And I'm glad to say I'm friends with that kid on Facebook, and he's still following after the Lord. It's so encouraging and inspiring. On the other hand, some people are actively seeking the truth, like the merchant who was looking for the valuable pearl. Some feel like there must be something more to this life than just what seen. Maybe that's you. You just had that. That whole of a feeling, like just thinking, like, there's got to be something more here. You go outside and you see the beautiful creation. You're like, there's got to be something more here. Maybe you learn, like, oh, this all happened by chance. And you're like, oh, that really doesn't make sense to me. There's got to be something more here. Your spiritual life is kind of in tune. You're just kind of, like, thinking, like, what's going on? There's got to be something more. i got to find out what this is. Remember the Ethiopian man in Acts chapter 8? He was sitting in that that wagon reading the prophet Isaiah, and he was like, Who is Isaiah talking about? Is it about himself or is it about someone else? And then Philip came along right and said, "Oh, Oh, the prophet Isaiah is actually talking about the Savior Jesus. Remember, he was crucified. And he was the one that rose again. He's the one that all these Christians or followers of the way are following. So the Ethiopian man, he spiritually was thinking. He was like, something's going on, and I gotta know what this is. And you're gonna have people in your life like that. They're gonna say things to you like, hey, can you bring me a church? And you're like, what? (laughs) Like you can't even believe it. But they're they're interested. They, they, they see that they need something in life. One of the things that we love about church is the reason why we preach the gospel every week in church, we know that there's going to be some people in life that when something goes wrong in their life, they're going to actually seek out God. They're going to look answers. Not everybody shakes their fist and says, why God, and turns their back. There's many people that have come to the Lord because of something tragic in their life, and they said, hey, you know what? I need to know more. I need to figure this stuff out because all of what's going on around me doesn't make sense. Maybe that was you. You were on the hunt to find out the truth about life, the truth about eternity, and the truth about who God is. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here today, and you want to know the truth, and you came to church, and you still have unanswered questions. Well, my suggestion to you is this, God answers those questions, keep seeking them. He says, if you seek, you will find. The point is, some will seek and find, and some will find that are never looking, but both when they see it, right, they're willing to follow. Both when they see it, they're willing to follow. Both are willing to see that eternal life is priceless, that Jesus paid the high cost with his life, that it was obvious to them and they needed to trust Jesus, and that would ultimately bring them joy.